This is Amanda McDonald, and you're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. You're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. My name is Christopher Cardenbicus, the host of the program, now in its second season, uh, subtitled Megalopolis, as we're exploring zines and DIY everything in D.C., Philly, Baltimore, wherever we can go. Um, I'm currently in Washington, D.C., behind Union Market. I'm in a skate pool that was built by Ben Ashworth as part of his Finding a Line project. And I hope I didn't get any of those details wrong, but I'm going to give Ben the chance to clarify here before we jump into a conversation with many wonderful people. Well, it was not built by me. It was built by a number of community members. Uh, Specifically, we had a lead builder named uh, Dave Mutarelli, so i got to give him a head nod and just, yeah, got to correct that. Yeah, yeah. Um, So do you want a description of what Finding a Line is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell us what the project is. So... I've said this so many times. Uh, Finding a Line is an ongoing community-sourced public art project that's very similar to basically a barn raising where community members come together and uh, build through their respective media. So I have uh, skateboarders in the mix, uh, visual artists, photographers, musicians, and any general community that sense that something's going on usually wander in because it's an open studio and uh, become a part of the project so it's sort of a big melting pot of uh, creative conversations and what's the typical event uh, look like here in the bowl lots of collisions so there's deliberately not enough room for a band and for the skaters to occupy the same space so just as jazz musicians will Uh, they might practice a piece over and over and have it down rather than reproduce that piece. This is more of a session format where you're forced to get out of territory you know, where you're maybe, you don't know who's leading the dance. Maybe the you're skating to the group of drummers or the drummers are skate or drumming to you skating. And there's sort of an expanded conception of self that happens. So for me, it's, it's a, it's a space for um, just creative exchange through our respective media. And uh, in skateboarding, we say, shut up and skate. So shut up and do whatever it is you do in this space, and that is what invigorates and grows the space. Yeah, I really love just being here and hanging out and watching all the activity that's happening through here. Um, so for the program, we do have, I think, eight people sitting here in the bowl. So let's just do a quick little intro, tell our listeners uh, who you are, give a little like elevator pitch, so we all are familiar with each other. Um, Bruce, let's start with you. Uh, I was born here in Virginia, grew up here building ramps and skateboarding, and uh, in 1985 we started a zine called Lapper, which kind of derived from the ramp A-Town in Annandale which uh, it was about to be torn down and we wanted to make a uh, kind of a memorial theme that had to do with the closing of the ramp. And we took a 
lots of pictures with our 35 millimeter camera, so that had a lot to do with it. And we ended up uh, putting the scene together. It turned out to be uh, kind of a success. A lot of people were interested in it. So after the ramp was torn down, we decided to try to make a go at it um, and make a full-fledged zine, but we didn't have a name yet. So our first issue was called A-Town. Our second issue was called EWSM, which stood for Bruce and Wade's Skate Mag. <laughs> and by the time we decided to put out a third issue... Um, we came up with a name. I actually came up with the name Lapper, which basically came from doing a frontside grind and the board kind of flapping over the edge. And uh, it was just a medium for all of our photography. We started incorporating art into it, contests, interviews, music reviews. And from there, it kind of took on a life of its own. And we ended up doing it for about four years, I think. And this, of course, was before desktop publishing. So everything was cut and paste, Xeroxed, stapled, and after a while we couldn't afford to put it out without some... Yes, with glue and scissors. Um, But after a while we ended up asking companies to advertise to help fund building the zine. And it lasted, like I said, up to about... Probably uh, 1999, 2000, and in the last couple of issues, we found a guy that told us about desktop publishing, and from that point forward, it started to look a little more like a real magazine. And he actually added a color to our cover, so it actually ended up having advancements. Yeah, we ended up having red ink on our cover with the plain old black and white. And that was about that. Then I moved out to Colorado, and we kind of did the same thing out there. We came up with a, a zine called... Wait for the helicopter here. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of activity. That's right. So when we moved to Colorado, we opened up a, a skate shop there called Surf Colorado, and same thing there we were always taking pictures and always traveling and going on road trips so we decided to uh, put out another zine which we ended up calling crap and the reason being instead of having one named lapper and one called crapper we figured that uh, if you were sitting on the crapper and you wanted to look at your zine while you were taking a crap you'd have a skate zine (laughs) You know, because back then people used to keep magazines by their toilet. Yeah. So that's where that name came from. And same thing with that. It just basically was a, an outlet for advertising our store, advertising our friends' businesses, artwork, interviews, music reviews. And that, of course, went back to cut and paste. So that was about the end of the zine uh, creations for us. And Sam, what was your zine? I, read I thought you did. Oh man, what zines were you in? What did you read? Uh, just, I don't even know. You know, I, I was just, I just came out here to lurk around. Right, well, you can hang out, lurk around the edges, jump in when you want to. Jamie, what do you got? Uh, so I'm Jamie Early, uh, 
I guess when I was in high school, kind of on the young side, 14, 15, uh, I stumbled on Bruce and Wade's Skate Mag, and uh, I was also starting to see, see music scenes coming out at the time, and uh, I always felt like I was a little bit a little bit younger than the, the big kids that were in, in Lapper and big kids that were showing up in in Thrasher, but, you know, I was I was stoked to kind of share the, the scene that, that I was a part of. So, um... So I kind of started putting out a magazine, doing the, the paste-up Xerox thing, and uh, taking most of the photographs myself, slowly teaching myself how to use a darkroom, uh, slowly um, getting a little better with photography through the years. Um, but then in the early 90s, skating kind of took a, took a shift and moved into, uh, into more street skating and kind of a, a scene that I wasn't so into, so... Um, I just kind of moved on from uh, from doing a skate zine, and uh, for for one year from New Year's Eve 1994 to New Year's Eve 1995, I put out a zine in Richmond called Chump, which was a uh, music magazine. And uh, back at the, during that time, um, a lot of a lot of bands that we were listening to that were sort of post hardcore, whatever you might want to call the genre of the time we're starting to get some notoriety and we're starting to take themselves uh, a little bit too seriously so it was more of a satirical magazine where even though we liked the bands we didn't like the attitudes so it was kind of a place to to make fun of uh make fun of people we liked yeah that's great and and you've got some involvement in the bowl as well we're sitting below your mural actually so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do here in D.C.? Yeah, so um, this is Ann Smith, and uh, I'm an artist here in D.C. Um, I got connected into this project um, through Ben, and Ben and I went to grad school together at George Mason University. And we'd been talking for a long time about doing some kind of a collaboration. You know, we'd always be talking in the studio about what we were working on, and it hadn't quite, like, intersected in terms of, you know, like, Ben does very different work than I do like I have a pretty individual studio practice of like drawing and printmaking and sculpture and Ben's always out doing awesome things in the world and (laughs) and so um but we we talked about a lot of the the same ideas and so when Ben um, brought the bowl to DC Pavilion uh, he suggested that we work on a project together so I came out and uh, wheat pasted this big I think nine and a half foot tall by maybe 12 or 13 feet wide uh, image of this sort of like a complicated, colorful, geometric prism almost. And what Ben was interested in was about all of these different planes and colors intersecting in a a way that kind of mirrored what happens in the bowl when people come from all over the place and interact um, here and sort of, you know, like have that uh, interaction together. Um, and I, I kind of like to think of it also as sort of like this this network. So, you know, I know Ben, but I've never met Bruce or Jamie before. Um, and then, you know, I met you, Chris, uh, also at George Mason when you came to teach. And through you, I met Lewis. We've been working on this awesome silkscreen book of his for the past two weeks and working really late and being exhausted and happy about that. And so anyway, this whole sort of like network gets gets formed like a community. And I think... The image also kind of speaks to that um, sort of building of a of a network in the system. 
I think that's a really amazing uh, description of what is going on here and of your piece and incredibly impressive considering that we probably have about 10 hours of sleep between the two of us for the past two weeks working on Lewis's project. Um, Amanda, you're uh, a student now at George Mason University. What are some of the things that made you interested in zines? And can you tell us a little bit about what zines you're making? Yeah, um, so I'm a sophomore at George Mason and I'm a drawing major. So this is my first introduction to zines and um, I'm currently taking a class called Books and Zines and going into that, like I've always loved books and I've always wanted to learn how to make them, but I didn't quite know what I was getting into and then um, I got into the class and I just, it kind of like opened my eyes to this world of zines. There's so many amazing, like um, different, there's skating zines, music zines, uh, it could be about anything you want as long as you have something you have to say and you want to get it out there and I really enjoy that. I've, I've learned I'm currently making uh, a collaborative zine in class with um, two of uh, my other friends and um, we're asking people what they're afraid of or what their biggest fear is and we're gonna like compile that and um, I've just I've learned to um, kind of how do I say this, (laughs) Um, expand what I uh, am interested in and see what other people are doing in the world. And uh, because I'm a very shy person, I've never like explored or pushed my boundaries. So this is my first introduction to the skating world and the skating zines. And I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, I've also made two other zines about like what it's like to be a twin and uh, just like here and now and that sort of thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Lewis, Long-time listeners will know that I, I love you dearly. Um, but one of the things we've been talking about with, with zines and skating and just how you came into the the world of self-publishing is that you've been surrounded by zines through the skate world, but you didn't necessarily start making zines to be interacting with that. You're doing zines more for artwork or art zines. So can you just talk a little bit about maybe uh, what were some of the first zines that you came upon skating? Uh, well, that's... There, you want me to hold that? Yeah, please. Great, thanks. I need a rest. Uh, <laughs> well, like Chris said, I, I, the joke I'm making recently is that, like, I went to graduate school to learn how to make zines, and uh, and it's kind of just completely counterintuitive, even though I've been skating since 1986 or something, like, uh, and I, like, my first introduction to zines was probably, like, Raymond Pettibone and Mark Gonzalez and, and people who were making zines and, like, they were accessible through skate shops and uh i remember actually the first time probably i ever i haven't shared this first time i ever got excited about like zines and what what that was what they were doing was still like way before i was that thought like oh i'm gonna study art or be an artist or anything was uh i was in a record store in san francisco and i found i saw this book and it was a book of raymond pettibone zines and I was like, whoa, that's that dude from Black Flag and all that shit. I didn't even know he was an artist or anything. You know, I knew nothing about art or anything. Like, and I saw this book that was like, it was like a, the, the, the compiled book of all Raymond Pettibone zines. It's like a 500-page book. It's a super valuable book, in fact, right now um, that I still have. It's worth like $1,000, whatever. You know, like, um, but I saw that book and I was like, whoa, this is, this is awesome. Like, like, I never even thought about like those kind of publications as like, self-expression or anything i didn't even know i didn't know anything about them even though my hilariously my friends were making zines i was surrounded by zines all the time i would just and i read like hundreds of pages every day of my childhood all through my youth you know and even up till today but like never thought 
about making zines. I was just like, it, all I wanted to do was skate and read books at home. Yeah. You know, that was pretty much the story of my life. Um, so when I got to graduate school, I, I found that I had an interest in turning my drawings, which weren't narrative drawings at all. They weren't narrative concepts at all, but I wanted to make a bunch of drawings and put them together in a kind of quasi-narrative way. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do? I don't want to make a graphic novel. I'm not going to like write a, a, a book of fiction. And so I was like, okay, I just made drawings. I'm like, I'll make a zine, I guess. And like, so I started started making zines that way, just as a way to like look at all my drawings together in a row and see if they made sense, see if I could make them say anything else by putting them in a, in, the, in the book form. You know, so from like the first page to the last page, are they are they doing something different than if I was just to take like page 12 out and look at it as a drawing or something? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about Bruce's store in Colorado? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, like, hilariously, I'm sitting in the bowl with Bruce right now. And so we're all sitting around at GMU the other day having a conversation. And Bruce calls Ben on the phone. And I didn't, I still hadn't made the connection. And Bruce and I didn't really know each other in Colorado, but in passing. But Bruce is kind of a legend in Colorado. So I've been to Bruce's house many times. But, like, Ben is talking to Bruce. And I was like, wait, are you talking? you talking about surf Colorado, Bruce. I've been to that dude's house a bunch of times. I've been to his shop, like, Holy crap. You know? So that was like, that was actually a really cool thing. And the, the Colorado, I was in living in Colorado for 10 years and witnessed kind of a nice wave of change go throughout the state, kind of about the same time as the concrete park scene started happening. And like the old Boulder crew of skateboarders started like dividing up and like spreading out throughout Colorado. And like it, I don't know something about that. Like, I started knowing people all over Colorado when the boulder scene started disseminating around Colorado and then all these parks started happening all over Colorado. So we were all just like constantly traveling to, to all these different parks, yeah. you know? And, and at the same time, of course, like I know like everybody who owns shop, skate shops in like Denver and Boulder are all my friends now, you know, like more or less. And like, they're all selling zines. I was surrounded by that stuff constantly through, through them too. So it kind of makes sense that like, just like that inundation eventually caught up to me and I'm like, okay, I got to make one of those fucking things. Hello, this is Bruce Adams and you're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. And then I finished high school in Pennsylvania. Then I lived in Florida. Then I thought I was going to live in San Francisco and be a skateboarder. And I didn't know how to be an adult yet. And that just all crashed down really hard, and unfortunately. <laughs> and then I lived in South Carolina for two years. Then I lived in Boulder for 10 years. So all this time you're skating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been skating constantly since 86, 87, somewhere around there. Did you do Bruce, he skated his... Uh, yeah, his yeah. And here you are, an adult now, still sitting in the bottom of a skate bowl. I, know. I, I, think I'll, I think I'll always be happiest. I mean, Ben and I have been talking about this all week. It's like, I think I'll always be happiest just drinking beer on a curb, you know, sitting in a parking lot, you know. So, all, as all my clothes will evidence, I spend most of my time sitting in a dirty parking lot. Yeah. You know. 
<laughs> or falling down in a dirty parking lot. All those guys, they moved away from, uh, you know, from D.C. Things just started disbanding. You know, most of my roommates uh, moved to Boulder. Um, Musselman, yeah, yeah. Keith Davidson. Oh, John Musselman? No, uh, Jeff Musselman. Oh, okay. Jeff Musselman. I know Keith, too. Hold yeah. on, no, I know a different Keith. I'm not sure if you know uh, Davidson. No, Keith, Davidson, photographer. Yeah, yeah he had Feedback was his zine. Yeah. Can I this real quick? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know Sam is doesn't want to talk. He's kind of he said he wanted to lurk instead. But no, before we started, he said something that was really important about how zines function for him. I'm gonna put him on the spot because I want him to say it again because I think it's really important. Do you remember what you said when we were uh, yeah. up on the bowl about before um, before the internet and uh, Facebook or Instagram or whatever? Um, we communicated through through the zines, you know, different factions of uh, of skaters and different, not only different neighborhoods, but different because uh, they were zines in different neighborhoods, but um, different states, different parts of the uh, of the country. Yeah. And uh, you know, one group would have a contest and uh, somebody's backyard, and we all knew about it from yeah. from the zines. They're flyers and zines. You know, you send somebody a stamp and they mailed you a zine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's how we communicated. Great. You know, uh, Wade, the guy that did uh, Lapper with me, he still has an enormous box of zines because people used to send them to us, so we'd send one back to them. I'd like to share share that with you at some point. Yeah. It's, it's this deep of zines from all over the country, and the names are just amazing. All the different crazy names. What was the name of your zine? Oh, I never made one in Colorado, but I made one. The, the thing I worked on first was a zine called Move Along People, Nothing to Feel Here. It was all just drawing, like really sad-ass drawings of reality. <laughs> just like you're trying to, uh, you know, have a vehicle to show your art, even if it was just to yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, people took photos of each other skating and, you know, and, and band photos and just general shit that you thought was funny. And you wanted to put it somewhere and say, hey, look, this shit's funny. And somebody... And and one of the pages that we would always include in Lapper, we called it Rat Crap. And it's basically just a whole page of gossip in the skateboard world. You know what I mean? Who has died or been hurt or had a contest or built a ramp. Um, It was a pretty interesting part of the the zine in itself and then we had arch scott bishop every issue we had arch's comic so every issue in the back cover had a uh a comic in it that he would write and draw and he's still drawing huh that big boss man one still leaves an image on oh yeah 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 then mr hooper or mark thought it was his dad (laughs) that was i'll have to show you some of this stuff but um that ramp in Colorado, you know Jason Heidecker just passed away. That's how that happened. We went out there to skate that ramp one day, and it was his house. He had built it originally. And me and Vince were skating, and the thing was on a five-acre field on the east side of Boulder. And we were, could you imagine living here, is what I said to Vince. And... Jason said he was looking for two roommates 
we went home that night, Vince and I. Vince called Jason and asked him if we could move in, move in, and he let us. And that's how that whole thing began. The first day we skated the ramp, that night, we were living in there by the end of the month. And that changed my life for five years. Caleb, Mil- Caleb Moore actually ended up building pretty much the rest of that ramp. Turned into a big bowl like Swain has right started now. Started out just as a six foot man. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Actually, Bruce, I wanted to ask you because I'm I'm new to the area myself. I don't know much about the art or the skate scene here. And you recently returned to the DC area. What's uh What are some differences between the creative communities and the, just the skate community that you've noticed since you moved back? All my friends left, and now I have new ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got two friends left, Mark Hooper and Mike Mapp. Hooper owns Cedar Crest, and uh, Mike Rose still as angst as he's ever been. <laughs> but, you know, Sam's still here. Um, ben is a, a somewhat of a local legend that I've heard about forever. I really have. Um Unfortunately, I didn't make it down here to uh, finding a line, which was my own. I know. (laughs) But uh, I had a bad snowboarding accident in Colorado and ended up with uh, epilepsy. So I ended up having to come back here because they were going to cut a hole in my head. And um, after about nine months of not having a seizure, they canceled the operation and gave me my license back. But that's how I ended up back in Virginia. And that's about that. Um, what else? So you, you came with a uh, a folder full of zines. Is that correct? Yeah, that's all the lappers. That's oh, wow. There's the first one. That's the A-Town one. That's another cool thing about this is all the covers had to do with we would let our friends draw different covers. This is... Why was it called A-Town? Well, Annadale Ramp. And this was where the ramp was. And Mr. Jablonski was always mowing his grass. (laughs) So I drew this picture of the cross. And that's the Jablonski's house. And there's Mr. Jablonski in the back. And then down here you can see where... This must uh, uh, come out after BWSM. And the second issue ever, March 1985, is uh, Pulaski Park. That's Dave Tobin down at Freedom Plaza. We used to drag our ramp down there on the weekends and uh, skate that place. So Pulaski's been around for a long time. That's like a a less less destination for skaters that go to D.C. And the back issues, a lot of them were just pictures out of other magazines. That's the first picture I ever drew when we came up with the name of Lapper. And uh, I remember sending this off to this guy to have it printed. And he sent back a cleaned up version of this skateboarder. He looked like a jock. He was all cleaned (laughs) up with flowing white hair. And I was like, no, no, no. I want the gnarly guy that I drew back on the cover of my magazine. And... A lot of punk shows. This was Wiggy's Ramp, which is when I started meeting all these guys. Um, there's 
Mars Arches comic on the back page. You're going to have to read some of these. They're hilarious. This is a spray painted. You'll, you guys will dig this. This is all art stuff. So our friend made this out of a stencil, spray painted it, and then spray painted around the edge. So every, every issue had to do with some sort of art. Um, I think John Utz drew this cover. John Utz drew that cover. There's another Arches comic. Can you describe the covers a little bit for our, our listeners who are not able to see these amazing... Yeah, uh, well, covers. like I said, the first, the first one... one yeah. yeah, the first one is uh, a drawing of A-Town and a cross where it had been torn down. The second one is a picture of Dave Tobin at Pulaski Park. The third one is the drawing I did where we actually came up with the first name. That was the first issue we ever called Lapper. And why it says number seven, I don't know. But you can see on here where we would put different articles and do different uh, tours. You know, this is from the Tahoe contest. Bad Brains Picks, Scream Picks, Chesapeake Ramp Jam, Ocean City Jam, and then these were just uh, pictures of contests that people would send us. Okay. This is the ramp, the, uh, what was that ramp? Down in Arkansas, pictures of Upland. And then on the back in the beginning, that's not the back cover, but we were taking pictures out of magazines like Thrasher and Skateboarder and just sticking them on the back. But as time went on, this was the issue that uh, John Utz drew. And see how it says Cedar Crest Country Club on it? This kind of looks like Mr. Hooper, which was the owner. He was a very wealthy guy that owned the country club. So that's another issue. They took a little personal because they thought that it was a mock-up of Mr. Hooper. And then... This was the comic in it, which was about Big Boss Man. This is the one Sambu was just talking about. Um, this was the contest where Don Hillsman did the first McTwist ever at Cedar Crest. So that made the cover. And once again, you know, PA contest, Delaware, Virginia Beach, music, you know, that where kind of thing. Um, probably at a, what was that, a, a Public Menace? ramp guys i'm not sure um what? sam public would know menace? who had a ramp up in pennsylvania was public it menace? public menace guys that's where uh, pennsylvania Paris- is harrisburg harrisburg i spent a lot of time skating in altoona yeah kids mountain skate park then we started having to do advertising uh and we were getting places the local surf shops sunshine house fairfax and whatnot and these guys were actually really willing to pay us to put advertising in our magazine. And that's what started financing getting the zine built was uh, by selling ads. This is naked so how? Uh, naked boards. They were from Boulder, <laughs> ironically enough. How large are the print runs for these? Like how many copies did you make of the zine? You know, I can't really remember. I do know some of our claim to fame things is Tower Records in California started selling it. Okay. Um, the uh, all the local shops carried it, Sunshine House and Fairfax, and who else was around? I can't even think. Fairfax Surf Shop. Um, but the uh, the in the end, we ended up putting out like five thousand issues wow. of one issue. Oh, and then we would do the calendar. There's two years we did a Lapper Magazine calendar. Yeah. 
and every picture was you know of a look this is the hell ramp in boulder but you did a run of five thousand yep five thousand mags that was near the end um this is fred smith at ocean city reese simpson so everybody who was somewhat somebody at the time was getting a lot of the coverage um, did you publish oh, Jamie or Sam or? Oh wow! Jamie name? was, I think, one of the younger kids that was there, and uh, I remember not really knowing Jamie. I remember the zine because there wasn't really any other local zine around at the time, yeah. other than Twisted, and he also was covering the contest and stuff at Cedarcrest. Matter of fact, that one with the results in it, yeah, is classic. It has the results of all the different divisions. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that that's hard to appreciate these days is that the magazines really weren't covering the East Coast back then. Exactly. Yeah. And Lapper was sort of the definitive East Coast skate mag, and um, you know, occasionally for some of the bigger contests, um, the bigger magazines would come out and cover them, but that was that wasn't very often. So um, Lapper was definitely sort of the, the lifeline for, for folks on the East Coast. We have a box of fan mail, if you want to call it that. <laughs> it's ridiculously huge, and people that back then were just regular skateboarders, Dan Wilkes and Tony Magnuson and Alan Losey, and some of the bands... You know, as time went on, they became iconic people. And back then, they were just regular Joes that would write letters to the zine, you know, either requesting that we cover their scene or, you know, thanking us for putting out coverage on the East Coast, like Jamie just said. Because there was no East Coast magazine. It was Thrasher and Transworld. Yeah, and most cities had at least a zine. and. um like there were several trips that I went on where I basically couch surfed, couch surfed from from different zine to different zine. I'd go to a city <laughs> and you know I'd say, hey, I'm going to be there in the next week or so. And um, you know it was before cell phones, before the internet, before all that stuff. But you would sort of figure out where the skate skate spot was, and uh, you would find the person you had been had been sort of your pen pal, and you'd have a place to stay. Yeah, yeah. it was like a paper Facebook. <laughs> it really was. That's what kept everybody connected. Yeah. Was sharing zines. Were you still connected with some of the people that you were connected with through the zine world? Loosely, yeah. 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 I think we've. I think a lot of, a lot of folks that were publishing zines have have gone on to continue sort of in the, in the creative arts, and plenty of them are still skating. And um, you know, you see what few people are doing through through Facebook and Instagram, and you're more keeping up with people virtually rather than you know actually talking to them on the phone or writing letters to them. But you, you know, you definitely see what everyone's still up to. Have you ever thought about like reuniting and making one big collaborative zine about what the zine world was like back then and versus now, and kind of? <laughs> You know, I, I realized that um, you know the, the first scenes that I did were were Xerox on a really really crappy Xerox machine, and the photos weren't that great, but they were a lot better than the way they Xeroxed. And my photography kind of evolved, but 
the printing processes didn't really evolve that much. So I started to digitize my stuff and kind of realizing that some, some photos are, are better or sort of stand the test of time more than, um, more than others. So I have thought about that a little bit. Do you think of like, uh, <laughs> of like uh, the process of making the magazine or, or your photography work as like having gone through a learning curve because of the publication you were working on? Like, yeah, a- absolutely. Um, like when I look at my, my photography, one of the funny things that happened early on is I'd, I'd heard somewhere that if you use black and white photographs, they'll Xerox better. And so I'm like, okay, I got to take black and white photographs now. And so I walked into this, this camera shop that was nearby, and um, I asked them if they did black and white photography, and I kind of explained, like, oh, I'm going to do a magazine, and um, I'd like to know if you can print film for me. And they're like, oh, well, you need, a, you need a dark room, and you should be doing this yourself. And they're like, but we'll do it for free for you as long as you're going to do it in this magazine and you'll put an ad in the magazine for us. And so for a little while, I was just going and doing sort of one hour black and white photo stuff. And then I, I started to progress, progress a little bit more. I got a better camera and um, started to, to develop stuff on my own. And I can see sort of a clear shift in the kind of quality of, of photographs from more of the, the point and shoot to the the stuff that I was thinking more about the the camera angles and then actually going into the the dark room and and doing the the prints myself. See, that's what we started doing. We built the dark room and we'd roll the film. Remember yeah. the little film rollers? Yeah. And we learned how to develop our own pictures. Yeah. And that's why we ended up. What kind of camera were you shooting with? A uh, Canon AE1. That's what we did. With a with I a 15 millimeter. Yeah. And then uh, later on, uh, Nikon FM2. Yeah, took it up a notch. I had the Pentax K1000, yeah. Yeah. which was like the... The classic. Yes, the cl- I still have it. <laughs> I was curious, for a minute ago you said something about um, like when you thought the, the lapper was successful. And I was wondering if you could like describe what success was for you in those terms. Like... Probably when the advertising started paying more than the amount of magazine it was costing to make. And we also did subscriptions, so to speak. So if you spent, sent us $2, we'd send you a zine with a sticker in it. And this is a funny story. Wade recently gave me all that Lapper fan mail. So I started tearing into it. And money in some of these envelopes. And one of the dollars was Czechoslovakia or something. You know? but I, I probably brought in about seven bucks. Yes, a couple checks and it's too bad I can't cash them. And one of the dollar bills was written all over with red marker. They drew all over George Washington, drew a beard and stuff on him. And uh, it's it's worth making a book out of that pile of of fan mail. It's really I would love to work with that on or work yeah, with you on that all that stuff. And what I started doing about three or four months ago when I got them is sliding them all into page savers. Yeah. But there's stuff in there from Magazine, Thrasher Magazine, H Street, Tony Magazine, 
thinking of starting that company up on the East Coast because the East Coast was so, you know, that's where the skate scene was starting to go. And then on the West Coast, Thrasher kept getting skinnier and skinnier. Trans World used to look like Vogue. It was like a half inch thick. Remember that? Yeah, it was really thick. And then they both shrunk and everybody started showing uh, interest in the East Coast because of Cedar Crest, Virginia Beach ramps, um, Trashmore and Lynn Haven, and down in Florida, um, Kona. Huh? And then skateboarding died. And then skateboarding died. All the wheels got too small. (laughs) (laughs) You can only die for old ramp parts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the street skating blew up and took over the world and Bert died. I had to remember I was buying roller skate wheels at the thrift store because I couldn't, I couldn't buy wheels that were a decent size to, to skate with. underground or something like that yeah. so if you buy a t-shirt from Rob it comes with a zine and this is what I talked to John Falls about doing with you guys we should make a, a what would you call it a retro issue or something with interview people like Micro or Jeff Swain or Ben Yeah. Um, do a music review um, the photography of Jamie and John Falls yeah. I don't, I don't my pictures come from a cell phone now. You think Ann can do the cover? Yep. <laughs> yes, you. that would be a definite. <laughs> and uh, with you and Ben working at uh, George Mason, the print company, we might have to uh, convince skate shops to pay us for advertising. No sponsors. No sponsors. Photography, art, interviews, poetry, <laughs> you know, which is otherwise known as music lyrics. <laughs> but I really do think it's something we should do. And, and skate spots, places like this, and Swain's, and GSL. It, it would be a heck of a project. It really would. Yeah. And we started the website back. I have DNA That's my plug. Uh, t shirt. It could come with free stickers and a zine. What, wait, what about the movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the movie, the Cedar Crest movie, is about to premiere again in Los Angeles um, on June 1st. Scream is going to play at that one again. And that was a film made by Mike Maniglia who owns Subterra Films, um, and it's basically a documentary about the history of Cedar Crest. Where's but the the, it's in L.A. I'm not sure. the. Uh, it's on it's Facebook, of course. Like Is it the Regent? Yeah. Um, the cool thing about that video is it's not a story just about Cedar Crest. It's actually a story about starting with the DIY projects when we were all kids, and then it morphs into the music scene, the punk scene in DC, and the zines. Yeah. And the zines, like Jamie was saying, is what kept everybody informed when there was music shows. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
So the story in itself is about 40 minutes of talking about the early days when all the kids were building backyard ramps. And then the ramps kind of went under. The music scene blew up. And the zines covered all that. And then Cedarcrest was built. And everybody kind of migrated to this one place, which is what the movie describes. But it's about DIY projects, the music scene in D.C., and it all leads up to Cedarcrest, where everyone came together, and then Cedarcrest died, and everybody went on in different directions. There are no Z-Boys in this film, correct? No Z-Boys. No Z-Boys. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, who who are Z boys? What are Z boys? Uh, Explain to the non-skaters. Made famous by the Dogtown and Z boys documentary that Stacy Peralta made, highlighting the Venice and LA skate scenes in the late seventies, early eighties. Okay. I would have I would have put Tokyo against the Z boys any day back in the day. Oh yeah. Those guys, Jason Farrell, really coined it in the movie where he's being interviewed. And says he would go to the ramp as a kid, and those guys would show up with long hair, mustaches, and drug problems. <laughs> and he's like, and I was skating with men. And of course, they were like, what, 18, were 19 they're, years they're old? Five, six years older than us. But I remember first meeting those guys. They all had long hair, they were all stoners. Blair had just got out of prison for something I'm not gonna talk about. And uh, they were all incredibly good. Every single one of them were, were badasses. And they also all became, you know, pretty legendary. That's, as Ben said, that's uh, Dan Heyman, one of the Toke Teamers, on the cover of uh, yep. Malcolm Meridian, X. Meridian Hill Park. Malcolm X Park. Yep with the fountains that cascade from one oh. to the next and in the winter time when they're drained you can skate all of them oh just, well they just filled it a couple pretty weeks amazing ago. yeah did they fill it yeah and uh dan's one of the oldest he He's skated like gsl me. a couple I think weeks he's yeah. 55 or something rip it 56 yeah. oh my god he broke his leg at GSL. and he just and broke, broke his it. leg yeah. yeah he didn't even make a noise he was just that's what uh, crawled out of there. That's what John well, that's awesome. It's not terrible. The skateboarder in the group. Oh, we're young bloods. <laughs> KL Keith Lenhar. He's another one that's like 56 or 55, something. 56. That's Mike the thing about old skateboarders. This is a group of people that has never existed before. You know what I mean? Yeah. As the sport has actually. progressed, there's never been really 50 year old in the history of the world, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Now, he's like the oldest, isn't he? He's like... He's 69. I mean, he's 59 now. He was 29 then. He just looks 69. I used to skate... I I lived for a couple years in Altoona, well, outside of Altoona, Pennsylvania, and in the country, but I used to skate with this... So, they would go to the skate park called Kids Mountain, and... It was ran by this older lady named Bev Titzel, who was awesome. She must have been in her 50s or 60s, probably her 60s by then. Still, like, always did the best grip tape of anybody I've ever seen in my life. This this old-ass lady who was a sweetheart. 
And her son, who must have been like 30, who I thought was like the oldest dude I'd ever seen in my life, with like big beard and he would skate vert on a longboard. And I, it was like, it was radical. It was really, really cool. But yeah, thinking like a 30 year old was like the oldest person in the world was pretty fun. Yeah, it's, it's, I've never had kids, but I could definitely be a grandpa. I mean, I'm 54 and my dad's still alive. So. It's hard to believe that he looks at me like I'm a dumbass for still rolling around on a skateboard. But uh, this is the fountain of youth. It's it is. empty. It's empty. Think about that. It's pretty cool.